You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So we are on Revelation chapter 6. We are looking at the breaking of the fourth and the fifth seal. Now, I'll be frank with you, if you've read ahead, you know that this is a pretty severe piece of text. This is a tough text to think about from a human perspective. It's a tough text to preach on, most definitely. And I want to make sure, as we do as we go through this book, we have the big picture context of what we're looking at here, because we're going to be talking about death this morning a lot. But this is not something new. Death is actually central to the Christian faith. We are dead in our sins because we are separated from God, and Christ came to die for us. So in that context, we shouldn't be too overwhelmed with the concept of death. It is how our resurrection and our redemption was won. However, when we're looking at some of these issues, it's tough. But the early church had a good response to this. One of the earliest things we have from the early church is called the Didache. It's, a, it's like a first century discipleship manual. I've quoted it many times here. I love the way it begins and it gives us a good context for this. It starts like this. It says, there are two ways to life. So this is Christians in the first century. It says, there are two ways, one of life and one of death, but there's a great difference between the two. And it goes on, the first is to love God with all your heart and love God. So there are two ways to life, one of life and one of death. What we are seeing in this final period of revelation is death coming to its ultimate fruition. The rejection of God leads to death, ultimately. That is where death comes from. God is life by his very being. He is the source of all life. To separate from him results in death. What we are seeing here in Revelation now, particularly this morning, as we are going to see a lot of death, is the final rejection of that, of God coming to its fruition. Just remember that when we do it. It's not something that pleases God in this sense, but it's something ultimately that he has waited until the last possible moment to deal with, and we are looking at that moment now. So, by way of context, we've seen the arrival of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as they are called. The white horse, you'll remember, was the arrival of this world leader, this one who stands opposed to Christ in all that he does, says, and thinks. We call him the Antichrist, more popularly. And then we've seen from him, we saw the black horse, which was famine, the red horse, which was war, and they came following on from him. We looked at a lot of historical examples last week, and we're going to do that again today. And now we're going to see him open the fourth seal, which is the last of these horsemen, and then we move into the last few seals that are slightly different. So if you are in Revelation 6, let's pick it up in verse 7. This is where we got to. It says, When the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to him, was given to them over a fourth of the earth, to kill with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, and by the wild beasts of the earth. So this is our fourth horseman. We've had the coming world ruler, we've had war break out, we've had famine follow from that, and now we have this one that is said here to be an ashen horse. This is, ashen's a funny colour, we don't really know that. The word in Greek is actually chloros. Um, if you've ever studied biology, the term chlorophyll, the green pigment in plants, that's where, the, that's where we get that from. So this is a, a greenish colour, but it's often used in the context of a pale green. So if you're reading a King James, it'll say pale horse there, not ashen. That's the idea that's being given here. It's 
Contra is basically speaking of someone who is sick as opposed to someone who looks healthy. And you all know that. You see someone who's on the verge of being sick. They look sort of green, don't they, and washed out and pale. That's the idea. The ancient writers, Thucydides, used it as to describe someone who was stricken with plague, which is quite apt because we'll see that as we go through. Homer used it to describe the paleness when you are really frightened. You, you see if someone's just been really scared or had a, uh, a major thing happen, they often just look white, sort of pale with fear. And that's the idea. So just that alone tells us that what the, what the environment on the earth is going to be like with the arrival of this horseman. People are going to be sick, and we'll see quite literally with plague in, in some areas in a moment, but people are, people are also just struck with fear. Like I said, this is the final culmination of the way of death, basically, and that's what we're looking at here. It says, the rider of this horse was death, and Hades followed after him. It's not uncommon to see these two people linked in the Bibles, even personified in this way. It's a literary technique. You'll find that quite a lot through the Bible. Death here is referring to the physical death of the body, obviously. Just reminds you that in the Bible, death is talked about as being the last enemy. So death is very much an enemy. Death is an intrusion into this world. Death does not come from God. Death comes from separation from God. Just remember that as we go through. But death here has always been one of Satan's weapons. We know that was taken from him, which is the whole reason why we have a resurrection in the Christian faith, to defeat the power of death. Yet, at the same time, we see here that it's not reached its ultimate uh, fruition, and we're, uh, that will happen at the end of this book. But right now, death comes upon the earth. Hades is referring more to the, the place of the dead, where, the, where people who are unsaved go, awaiting that final judgment and resurrection. So this is what that's talking about here. Now, as horrible as this Revelation sounds when you talk about authority over a fourth of the earth. We do need to remind ourselves, when we get to the end of the book of Revelation, you will see that death and Hades themselves are thrown into the lake of fire, implying that this intrusion into the earth, death and all the suffering that has gone with it, will ultimately be taken away from the earth. And that will be this era of the kingdom. We're into the messianic age there. So death was never wanted, never intended in, the, in, in one sense. It's an intrusion, it's an enemy into this world, but it has been dealt with and ultimately it will be finally vanquished by Jesus Christ. But right now we're going to see death have its last time on this earth. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now let's pause for reflection here. If that statement doesn't bother you, you're probably not reading it right or you're not thinking about it right. There's a tendency often in Christianity because we've spent a lot of time looking at these things, studying these texts, that we can read over it maybe slightly glibly. But don't be lost if, if you're not a believer here, if this is a new believer. When you hear something like that, it's quite shocking. It is supposed to be. It's, the idea is this is the way of death. There are two ways to life, one, two ways to live, one of life, one of death. This is it. This is what is happening here. If we were to base that on current population figures, you'd be talking of just under 2 billion people are going to be killed during this period of the fourth rider. Now, of course, current population figures might not be actually accurate to when we get to this period of history, so we don't know 
but whatever we know, it's going to be a lot of people. And this should, again, alert us to the fact that something very unique and significant is going here. What we are seeing is the fullest expression of rebellion to God manifested by the government of this lawless one. Humanism has its full, unhindered, unrestrained hold on the world at this time. It is absolutely unprecedented. We know nothing like it. We can see glimpses of what it would be like through studying empires and the spirit of Antichrist, as we have done. But this is something, again, something much more. We've never seen it like this. Remember the words of Jesus. For there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of this world, until now and nor ever will be. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. For the sake of the elect, those days were cut short, are going to be cut short. Now, let's look at the methods that we've seen in Revelation 4 by which these deaths occur. It says to kill with the sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts of the earth. So sword is a fairly obvious one. We actually talked about that with the red horse, didn't we? That's obviously military confrontation. That's generally talking about war. Famine... We talked about that with the black horse. Famine is often a weapon of war. It's also a consequence of war. So those two things go hand in hand. And then it says pestilence and wild beasts. Now let's talk about these ones for a little bit. Now historically, obviously, there is a natural flow. All these things flow together. War, pestilence, famine. Uh, often when you've had a war, and you've had famine, the breakdown of infrastructure, you start getting disease popping up everywhere like that. That, again, follows on logically from these things. However, really, if you actually look through human history, do you remember we talked about the historian who said there'd only been like 240 years of uh, peace, of time when there was no recorded conflicts on this earth? Even when you take that into account, if you look back through human history, disease has killed far more people than war. If you think about that figure, that's quite a shocking understanding. Even the, in the large-scale wars, like the American Civil War or the World War I in our time, the figures of how many died from disease are more sometimes or comparable to how many died in the actual conflict. And that's something that we don't often think about, but if you, if you go online and you look at the figures, disease was a major killer during all of these times of war. Now... In World War I, particularly if you study it, you know they had you know, typhoid outbreaks and dysentery, and these killed you know, hundreds of thousands of people across the trenches. They had something called trench fever, which was basically uh, a lice infestation that, that would cause uh, sickness and death. It's estimated that pretty much every soldier had these lice on them at a certain point, and many of them died because of that. So in that sense, you get sort of pestilence and wild beasts combined together. You see how these things can be combined together to bring that about. I spent a lot of time reading about, I know you can't read that on the screen, but the impact of infectious disease in war times, which is where I got a lot of these figures, figures from. There's lots of journal articles about it. Just after World War I, 1918, we have something called the Spanish flu, or the influenza epidemic that spread across the world and killed more, more people than in fact World War I did by three times the amount. So that was a, a pretty serious time in history. So disease, again, you can see how this follows on from the things we've already talked about at this time. But I want to look at this from another angle too now, because we can look at things like the Civil War and World War I, but we are living in a time in history where things have progressed far from what they had available to them today. And I would say you can't rule out the use of biological weapons here for warfare. And this is a serious element. I want to go into this a little bit with you now. 
I understand this is not usual Sunday morning topics, but we are, we are kind of getting this from, from the text, so this is what we're looking at here. Most regimes across the world, including the US, Russia, North Korea, China, Iran, on and on, pretty much all, all of the major governments and the major players in the world have pretty advanced biological weapons programs. And the problem with this is that although they all sort of say on paper they're agreeing by the, the vague guidelines that the international bodies have set, of course they don't like to really reveal what is going on in their separate countries. A lot of these countries are very much against each other. So there's not much regulation on these types of things. But if you want to trace the money, Billions upon billions of pounds have been spent by all of these governments investing in biological science and the related fields, and the risk has increased exponentially in recent times. Now, this, I'm going to say this, this is really where I am on this issue, but you all know over the last few years we have felt somewhat of what global disease and pandemics are like. There's a very strong case that can be made that what we have experienced over this last few years is something that well, came from one of these areas. And then again, like I always say, when I'm touching on these issues, please don't go further than what I'm saying. I'm not looking to make political points. I'm not looking to demean or do away with any of the real suffering. I'm actually arguing it is very real in that sense. But the origins, I would say, are slightly different. There's a book that came out at the end of last year, What Really Happened in Wuhan, by Sherry Markson. She's one of Australia's top investigative journalists. It was published by HarperCollins, and it's a very, very interesting book. Her argument is obviously that the most likely origin of the coronavirus was that it was leaked accidentally from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. We know that the Wuhan Institute of Virology were doing experiments with coronaviruses at that time. That's one of their projects. Now, again, just by caveat, I know when this first came out, there was huge amounts of political debate going on about the origins of it. We thankfully moved past that now. The reason for that was because one side of the political aisle said this, therefore the other side must automatically disagree and everyone digs their heels in and you don't get any constructive argument. Now that things have changed a little bit politically in that area anyway, a lot of the research, the journal articles and the papers and the scientists who were speaking out have a bit either been allowed to say and write and do these sorts of things. But we do know that that is what was happening in Wuhan at that time. They were experimenting on coronaviruses. And this book goes into huge amounts of detail with the ensuing debacle, the cover-ups, the, the scientists that disappeared when they started to blow the whistle on these various things. It's a fascinating book. But one of the things that she documents in this book very, very well is that, it's very interesting, in September 2019, the Chinese government held a large-scale anti-coronavirus exercise in the airports around Wuhan and the hospitals, which was basically equivalent to a military exercise. Now, I find that interesting. That's the, the Wuhan Institute of Virology there. Around the same time, so that was September 2019, and you'll see where I'm going with all this in a while. About a month later, October the 18th, 2019, there was an event in New York called Event 201. If you haven't heard of that, you may have heard of that if you've seen it, but Event 201, here's the website. It's still live today. You can go on and read all about it. Event 201 was a high-level pandemic exercise and funnily enough, their, their pandemic exercise was a fictional coronavirus pandemic, 
where they predicted the death of 65 million people. And mind you, this is 2019, just before we knew about all of this, a month after China's pa coronavirus pandemic exercise. The idea of this event 201, was what they call a pandemic, isn't it? It's a 201 event. So the idea of this practice was to get together the relevant peoples and players so that they could form a response. So this in, in included big private businesses, governments, and all these sorts of things, and the key institutions, and they would know how to respond. Now, of course, when the pandemic came out in 2020, a lot of people raised questions about this, so, so much so that they were saying, were you making a prediction? Did you know something was going to happen? To the point that the Event 201, they actually had to release a statement saying... We, we didn't, we're not predicting this, uh, but just making it very clear that this is not, they didn't know anything, that's what they were saying here. It was just coincidence that it happened to be exactly the same that what we were doing. And, you know, make of that what you will. Now, <laughs> it, it does, you'll see where I'm going with this in a moment. So, it's uncanny, really, that you have all these different things converging at the same time. Now, what came out of the conference, the Event 201 conference, was a number of measures that would be used in the event of a 201 event. And this was global governance. This was a, a cooperation between all governments of the world, enforced quarantines, population control in the form of travel and trade, control of information by sanctioned government outlets, punishment for dissenters, a radical shift to digital economies, compulsory vaccines and biometric IDs. And I'll remind you, this was 2019. So this was all before the world that we knew anything of this was going on. Now, you can stand here and think, this is very political. Just remove that from your mind for a minute. I'm not making this stuff up to tantalise you because we're going through a study of the book of Revelation. That's just not what I'm doing here. I just find this to be quite fascinating. And what I want you to see in the big picture as we're going through Revelation is how this spirit is already operating in the world. Now, whatever the crisis may be, it's just, for me, telling that all of the solutions that are offered by man end up pointing us to the exact things that we read about in Revelation, which is exactly where what should be happening if what God says in his word is true, and it absolutely is true. So I want you to look at it in that context. Now, look at who organised Event 201. I've talked about them a bit at the beginning of this study. We will do a special topic on some of these things later as we go through this book. The organisers of this event, John Hopkins, obviously, uh, University, the World Economic Forum, and the Gates Foundation. Now, the World Economic Forum, I mentioned them briefly, that is a collaboration of the elite private businesses of the world, a way for them to work in unison with the governments of the world, and in their own words, to shape the direction of our world. That is the World Economic Forum. You can read that on their website. Now, it's no coincidence, again, the founder of the World Economic Forum, this man here, a man named Klaus Schwab, he wrote a book last year describing how COVID-19 and the Great Reset was the perfect opportunity to reset the world. And when you read the book, I have the book, when you read it, what he really means by reset the world is set up this emergence of this global government and cooperation between big business and big government. That is what they mean by that. And then shaping the world, they mean they will be the ones that call where and how and what we focus on and what people are allowed to do. And that's basically what we see happening. But he wrote this around the same time. So again, so you see another strand converging here with the same thing. 
Now, the Gates Foundation, now, of course, if you've been on the internet, you know for, for years Bill Gates has been the subject of much speculation, hasn't he? And I, I don't want to go down the route of all the things you can find on the internet. Just ignore that for a moment. But there are some very real things. If you, if you know anything about the Gates Foundation, they are huge advocates for the population decrease. The, that's one of the things. Climate change is because of overpopulation, and there's got to be ways to do that. He is behind the big push to ruin the US agriculture, to stop the production and eating of meat, because that's another issue with climate change. He is the largest private landowner of farmland in the United States right now. He's secretly been buying all of that up behind the scenes, and he does do that. The Gates Foundation do that. But as relating to pandemics, plagues, the things that we're reading about in Revelation, he wants a universal vaccine program. He says that the world cannot return to normal until every single person is vaccinated. Again, I'm not making points about vaccinations, but I want you to see the big picture here. He is a huge advocate for these things, and he's even come up with a way to do it. It's called ID2020. This is their website. You can go on there and read that. It's live right now. This is his website. His plan is to give every human on the planet biometric verification. Every human on the planet biometric verification. And when you read the small print on the website, one of the reasons he's talking about this now, that he's involved and in sponsoring things like Event 201, is because he says that mass vaccination programs could easily be administered if everyone is biometrically verified in the event of a 201 event. That's what he's saying here. And then you read a little further, he says this, those who refuse to be tagged by this system will eventually become outcasts and denied basic services i.e. we're going to see a little later in this book that you cannot buy or sell unless you agree to certain things. Now, I'm not saying this is that, but what I'm saying is we are very close to being in a world where those things are immediately possible. Deny people basic services, health services, food services. This is basically what he's saying. Now, a lot of people are shocked by this. A lot of people say, you know, it's prophecy nuts, making too much of it, make of it what you will. I understand it sounds a little like a dystopian movie, and people throw that term, you're a conspiracy theorist, and I would say, no, this is not a conspiracy theory. I've literally just grabbed this from their websites. At this stage in history, it is very overt. It's very obvious. You can go on, you can read these websites for yourself. It's not even hidden, really, anymore. This is what it is. Now, at a certain point, when you look at all these different strands, you have to see there is a global convergence towards the sort of world that Revelation talks about, reminding us like it says at the beginning, the time is near. When Jesus said, when you see these things start to happen, look up for your redemption draweth near. These are things that we need to be aware of in this world. And it reminds us that God's word is true. How could a book written in the first century in the Greco-Roman culture speak so accurately into our world today? It couldn't unless God was writing down future history for us. It, that I find very encouraging because some of the other things in God's word promise us that we're going to spend eternity with the Lord, that we're saved, that our sins are not going to be held against us. We have many, many blessings, hundreds of promises from this same word. So we should be encouraged by that. And let me again remind you, if you're a Christian here this morning, it's very easy to get caught up in this sort of thing. You end up watching and think, you spend all of your time in this to the point that it's unhealthy for your Christian faith and it can ruin your witness in the world. The question we have to ask is, how do we know the line between what's being wise, in the sense, like Jesus said, you need to understand the times, and when you're sort of going off the reservation a little bit, and your discernment drops in your 
you know, one thing you're watching is true, the other thing you're watching is well beyond what scripture inclines and you, you are into the, the fringe element. How do you know? I would say simply this. If you know more about Bill Gates, if you know more about the World Economic Forum than you do about the specific teachings of Jesus Christ, you've gone off the reservation. And that's, that, that will keep you safe. So I meet a lot of people who know lots about this sort of stuff. You ask them a doctrinal question about something Jesus taught in the Gospels and they are not clear on it. If, if, you're not, if that's your balance, you're out of balance and you'll probably end up going off. So keep that as, you, as, as your guide as you go through these subjects. And these subjects are important. Jesus talked a lot about these things, but make sure that's your guide there. So that, that's a slight digression, I, I know, but I do think as we're talking about pestilence related to judgment, all of these things at some point will come into play because as we can see, they do picture a world that is eerily reminiscent of what we are looking at in the scriptures here. So it says pestilence and then it, the final one is and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now, wild beasts of the earth, from an English context, we're kind of like, what? Badgers, kind of, well, what, what, are we gonna, what are we dealing with here? But... Obviously, in the context, is not English. It's the Middle East uh, uh, and some of these other places in the world, surrounding regions. You do have many dangerous animals, um, particularly if you could imagine a world where infrastructure has broken down when there's been famine. You know, it's not hard to imagine that animals do cause a lot of death. But it may be actually hinting at something different than that here, than just sort of wild animals wander wandering around. Yes, they're, they're wild in the sense that they're not domesticated, is what that means. But animals have always been used in war. You've seen that, yeah? If you go through ancient warfare, animals are always used quite viciously in war. And I'm not just talking in ancient warfare. I mean, you go back to World War II. Hitler had a whole massive program for animals, particularly dogs. He loved German shepherds and Alsatians and Dobermans. And he had a specific training regime, and he trained them to be guards in the concentration camps. There's huge amounts of articles and things about uh, the way that he loved animals but he also trained them to do his purposes. The, these dogs were trained particularly to kill. They were trained to attack certain areas of the body. And many, there's many, many, many recorded records, tragically, of these guards being allowed, these dogs being allowed to eat people in the concentration camps as a sign to the rest of the inmates. And they were trained to the point that you, he could whistle, the guards could whistle, give a command, and they would kill on command. And that's generally, you know, it may be talking about something like that. It's always been involved in, in the Buchenwald concentration camp. They had a zoo right next door. So they had the concentration camp and they had a zoo. The zoo was built by the inmates, the, the Jewish people there, and, but it wasn't for them, it was for the guards. So the idea was when the guards who were doing the maiming and the torturing on this side, they needed a bit of R&R, &R, they could go over on their lunch breaks and enjoy the animals in the zoo. However, because it was such a depraved period in history, evil really reared its head, quite often the records show that the, the commander of the Buchenwald camp, he used to love throwing some inmates to the bears and to the lions, and he would watch and it would be part of his pleasure there. So all of these things, I think, are not outside the realms of possibility. There, are, there is historical precedent for animals being involved in this sort of thing all the time. Now, these things are shocking, they're horrible to hear, but again, just remember, what is one of the key characteristics of all of these regimes? It's that spirit of Antichrist which rejects Jesus Christ as Messiah. There are two ways, one of life, one of death. And that's what we're looking at here. Now, again, just I think there's a lot of warnings we can take from this. One side of the fence you had people and animals. The other side you had prisoners who had been classified as subhuman and dangerous on the other side. 
be very careful whenever you see an ideology that dehumanizes a certain group of people. Be very careful. We are seeing it again today. I've seen it, it, this is the same spirit that operates. Whenever you study history and you see that happening, it usually will end in something like that. When man dehumanizes their fellow man, for whatever reason it may be, be very careful when you see that, because you are more than likely seeing the spirit of Antichrist in operation in the world then. Now, when you put all these things together, we've looked again, just a broad spectrum of different empires, different parts of the world, different cultures, different eras in history. The common denominator between them all, this is what happens when you forget God. That, that is ultimately it. This is what happens when men forget God. This is why in the Bible we are warned again and again and again and again that this will happen when you reject God. People often wonder why the Old Testament is so long. People, you've seen that question. The New Testament's quite small. The Old Testament's long. This is why the Old Testament is so long. Most of the Old Testament is a warning to the people of God not to stray from God because the result of that will be this. You will see these sort of things happening. We're studying the book of Isaiah on Wednesday right, nights right now. It ties in very well with what we're saying. Many of the prophets are warning Israel of the consequences of rejecting God individually as far as their own salvation, but also nationally and then also globally. All of these things are mentioned by the prophets. I'm going to read to you a little bit of something we studied a couple of weeks ago. Isaiah chapter 1. This is the prophet Isaiah bringing God's indictment against Israel at this time because they have walked away from him. I want you to notice the features of the world that he's describing and compare it with the things we've been looking at. He says through the prophet Isaiah, Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who are corrupt. They have abandoned the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, and they have turned away from him. There's the three reasons why all this stuff is happening. And if you think that that is not true, like I just said, go to pretty much any regime in history where you find these things happening, and you'll find a common denominator, someone standing against Jesus Christ or pretending to do things in Jesus Christ's name, if you want to put it like that, but a false Christ in that respect. He goes on, the whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint. Now when you, you know, just look at those things I described to you from Second World War, you have to describe, that is a good description of someone whose head is sick, right? That is what we're talking about here. Isaiah goes on, your land is desolate, your cities are burned, your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence, it is desolation overthrown by strangers. What that means is that foreign armies have come in and they are at war with you. They're taking your land. You did not rely on me for your protection. You did not rely on the way that I set to live, which is a way of righteousness, truth, and love. And instead, because of that, now you're at war with your fellow man. Very good description. He goes on. How the faithful city has become a harlot, Jerusalem he's referring to. She who was full of justice, where righteousness once lodged in her, now are murderers. Your silver has become dross, your drink is diluted, your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe, chases after their own rewards. They do not defend the orphan and the widow's plea does not come before them. In a world where God is rejected, hated and abandoned, you will see murder, you will see corruption, you'll be led by people who are corrupt and this will go on and on. Your cities will be burned, you'll be at war with your neighbours. What a wonderful description of human history. <laughs> And I say wonderful in a sort of not, it's not wonderful, but it's a wonderfully accurate description of human history, which really is the story of man's word or God's word. 
That is ultimately where it is. His charge against them was they were breaking his word, the Mosaic law. In their rebellion, they had chosen to abandon the Lord. More than that, they despised the Holy One of Israel. They turned from his word. They turned from him. And remember, his way is life. The other way is death, which is why when we're studying these things, we see a lot of death because that's what happens when, you, when the further away you go from God, the more you will see of that. However, we know that God hates this, and God pleads for them to return. This is why he sent them Isaiah. Please, understand what I'm saying. All the time, he pleads for them. He offers them forgiveness. He offers them mercy if they would repent. He even tells them that one day in the future, there's going to be great blessing coming to this nation as a way to try and get them to come back to him at this time. He says, yes, my justice will come. Now, unfortunately, many times in history, people don't heed those warnings. People didn't do that in the Old Testament. They didn't do that when Jesus came. You remember he told that story with the landowner, the vineyard owner. Oh, I'll send them my son. They'll listen to him. He, you know, they'll listen to him. No, they killed, the, they killed him and threw him out, didn't they? He was predicting, obviously, what was going to happen to him on the cross, that he would be died. This is the same principle here. God is pleading with all of humanity, stop this rebellion. It's causing death and destruction on this planet. That is not what I want. I have a better way of life, one that results in eternal blessing for your future. Who's listening? They're not listening to the prophets. We're not listening to the word of God. I'll send them even my own son. Surely they will listen to him. No, we crucified him. And you see, this is why the world is like it is. However, we know that God still holds out justice and mercy to us. This is one of the reasons why he instituted the church, to take that eternal message of the gospel to the earth because you can still be taken from this. You can still be rescued. This is why the gospel is so important. Justice will come. Now, many people are uncomfortable with the kind of judgment passages that we read in the scripture, and I understand that. However, again, contextualize it with the big picture of history. You know, when you hear of the SS commander throwing Jews to the bears for his own entertainment, we demand justice for that, right? You can see that that is a huge injustice, that is something wrong, something that violates the basic principles of humanity that God put in us as image bearers. We, we have that intuitive sense that we know that and we have that need for justice. If we can see that on a human sense, how much more is God righteous in judging on the, on the cosmic sense when he sees that day after day, millions upon millions of things? Yet, I'd remind you, even in spite of all that, all of those things, things that we couldn't even imagine, he put them on the shoulders of his son and he, his son took all of them for us to make a way that we could be reconciled with God, to make a way that future blessing would come. How much more with a holy God? We long for justice as the church, ultimately, but we long for people to come to him primarily. That's ultimately what it is. And this is exactly what we see in the next seal, in fact. So let's move on now from that and look at verse 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the testimony, because of the word of God, because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer, until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would also be completed. Now underneath the altar now in heaven, John sees the souls of those who had been slain. And the imagery that we're seeing here is drawn from the Old Testament, as most of Revelation is. Do you remember in the tabernacle they had this altar of sacrifice? 
Um, if you read through places like Leviticus 4, you'll find out that when they, they made the, the sacrificing of the animals, again, that points us to the final sacrifice of Christ, one of the things they did was pour out some of the blood underneath at the bottom of the sides of the altar. I think that's the imagery that's going on here. It's trying to show us that what he's saying about these people who have been killed for their testimony because they're believing the word of God and believing in Jesus at this time, their life is like a sacrifice. Their life was a sacrifice. They didn't give it willingly, don't get me wrong, that's what I'm saying, but I'm saying it was taken from them and they, they, that happened to them because they love the Lord. And this is, again, not something that we, we should have trouble understanding. You could look around the world. I'll show you a few examples right now and we can see that. They gave their lives for the cause of Christ. But what this text is telling us that it seems at this point in this future period, a massive religious persecution does break out. Something, again, which is different than anything we've ever seen or experienced on this world. Again, Jesus warned us of this. Matthew 24, verse 9. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Now this, again, shows us this cosmic battle that I keep referring to, these two ways of life, these spirit of Antichrist and the spirit of God. This is why his name is hated. This is exactly the reason here. His name is hated across the world. But... Ultimately, we're seeing the final period of this here. But look back where it says why they are hated. Because of the word of God. This is so pivotal to understand. It shows us where the conflict really lies and where the spirit of the world focuses its attack. Why, however hard people may try to avoid this conclusion, it keeps coming back to us, hitting us straight in the face throughout history and throughout the world. All these culture wars that we see going on and on and on with all these different issues, these are all just symptoms of this, underneath it, the fundamental battle, God's word or man's word. God's word or man's word. That is always what it comes back to and that started off right in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? And obviously I'm talking about fallen man who is separated from God and the person who's behind them. Has God really said, they said, she said, the serpent said to Eve, has God really said that you'll die if you eat that? It's the same thing playing out through the whole of human history here. Now, at this time, like I said, we see an unrestrained humanism that has got to the point where we're about to see the point of self-deification. Just like the Roman emperors used to declare themselves God, this future world leader will at some point declare himself God. And that means he is in full, overt rebellion as much as we could possibly imagine against the Messiah at this time. He is standing against God and against his word. And because God is still not, Jesus is not physically on the earth like he was back then or like we will see in the future, he turns to the next best thing, those who follow God and keep his word. That is why. That is the reason why we see so much of this. And again, this is not something that we have to imagine. Yes, we imagine it on this scale, but around the world today, this is very, very real too. And I'm not going to give you any graphic examples or anything like that, don't worry. But I want you to see the spirits and the things operating behind this. Do you remember last week, we looked at a couple of regimes that I said were operating like this. We talked about Marxism and how the lack of belief in God is fundamental to that whole system there. It's no surprise if you... Look at some of the places in the world today where persecution is. You see these same themes coming up again. 
This is the Open Doors watch list. Open Doors are a Christian organization that monitor persecution across the world. They just released their world watch list for 2022. Now, usually the top two places, it's usually North Korea is number one, and then it's Afghanistan is usually second or somewhere lower on some of them. This year, Afghanistan is number one and North Korea is number two. Now, Afghanistan is number one because it was handed on a platter to the Taliban this year. So, obviously, Christian persecution went up. North Korea is the ultimate, really, expression of what we see of, of, of dictatorial Marxism going on in this world today. Now, remember the principles. I'm talking about spirit of Antichrist operating through governments, and it says in the Bible here, when you have that happening, people will, who cling to the word of God and who name the name of the Lord will be persecuted because these things are fundamentally at odds. That's happening in the future in Revelation, but you can see this happening now. It is no mistake that the top two, in fact, that's the top 50 there, almost every single one of them is either Marxist or Islamic. Okay, this is what I want to show to you here. Both of these things, they are controlled by regimes that operate in the same spirit, i.e. they stand against Jesus Christ. We talked about communism and Marxism a lot, but very briefly, Islam too stands in direct opposition to Jesus Christ. It's actually a central tenet of the Islamic faith. You can go all around the world today. This is a specific verse from the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, the big gold dome. On the inside of that dome, if you've ever seen inside, they have a number of Quranic verses, one of which says this, Jesus, son of Mary, is but a messenger of Allah. And this is all written in the context of making sure that the, because in Muhammad's day, he mixed with Christians and he knew the belief of Christians in that sense in some ways. But he says, and his word, which he cast upon Mary and a spirit from him. So believe only in Allah and of his messenger, but do not say three or Trinity. So he's a direct attack on the Christian conception of God there. And it will be better for you. Allah is only one God, far be it from his glory that he should have a son. You see how overt that is? People don't realize. Now, remember what the spirit was. You will stand against the son. You will deny Jesus Christ the place of who he is. So both of these uh, ideologies that we see here are operating in that spirit, both making specific denials of Jesus Christ as Messiah and both displaying they're the two most places in the world where Christians are to be persecuted. Again, I'd ask you, a first century book, how could that know that and get that right, writing 2,000 years ago, just on an apologetic level? Because how do you even know those religions are still going to be there in 2,000 years? Many ancient religions disappeared over that period of time through history. But the Bible is absolutely spot on. It gets this right again. Now, all of these 50 places, like I said, are generally Islamic or Marxist. There's a few others, some for India and the Hinduism there, but it's the same, same principle, actually, that applies with all of these things. We could take them through. It is because... They stand for the word of God, and it says in the text there that we read, they stand for the testimony which they had maintained. They were slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they maintained. What is that testimony? Ultimately, it testifies that God is true, that Yeshua, that Jesus is the Messiah, and that this world leader who is there at this time, who is now claiming himself to be God, is false. That is what it's testifying for. That is why they needed to be killed at this time. That is what is happening at this point in the earth. Again, Sounds crazy for us, 
but actually you go and speak to the Christians in other parts of the world, doesn't sound that crazy at all. Sounds pretty standard. Verse 10, they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood of those who dwell on the earth? So we see this cry for justice now from those who have been killed. It's a cry for righteousness. It's a cry for that time of blessing to come. It's a cry for the rebellion of man to be stopped by the Lord. They're praying for the second coming, basically. We pray it all the time when we say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come. What do you think we're praying for when we say that, thy kingdom come? Not for some sort of a spiritual expansion of the kingdom in, all, in, in the life of this world. We're praying for the time when everything is set and ordered by the righteous and true king. Thy kingdom come. This is just looking at it from another angle. And it says, judge those who dwell on the earth. Notice that phrase, earth dwellers. It's a very specific phrase we're going to see through Revelation. It's not just talking about people who are inhabiting the earth. It's talking about those who have rejected the Lord, who are standing against him, who blaspheme his name, who follow this new world leader and who are persecuting the saints. We first encountered it in Revelation chapter 3, the promise to Philadelphia. You have kept the word of my perseverance. I will keep you from the hour of testing, which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. The church was promised that you would not be here through that time, you see. This is the testing. This is the judgment. And it points to the fact that this is a very terrible time of history. It is the ultimate fruition, like I said, of the way of death. But still, God holds out salvation. Even in this time, as we're going to see through this book, there are ways that he has, people that he has set apart, to continue going around, even as the ship is sinking almost, going around telling people, Jesus will forgive you, Jesus will forgive you, repent, repent, repent. It's the continual message that we're going to see. Now, I find this it's slightly ironic, almost like a paradox, really, the more intense the persecution becomes at this time for the church in this last day and age, the more people keep coming to the Lord. And you can almost see it's like he doesn't understand what's happening. The more he's trying to eradicate this, the more it keeps having the opposite effect, which again, is we find that all throughout history. Right back to the early church, Tertullian, the first, second century church father. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. He wrote a letter to the Roman emperor. It's called the Apology now where he's defending Christianity against the charges of the empire. He says this, We are not a new philosophy, but a divine revelation. That's why you can't just exterminate us. The more you kill, the more we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You praise those who'd endured pain and death, so long as they aren't Christians. Your cruelties merely prove our innocence of the crimes you charge against us and frustrate your own purpose. Because those who see us die wonder why we do. For we die like the men you revere, not like slaves or criminals, and when they find out why, they join us. And the reason why was because their hope was now in Christ. That's it. Same today. Fastest growing church in the world. Iran and China. Two places where being a Christian is not easy at all. Let's just, verse 11 and then we're done. And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of the fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. White robes, often a picture of salvation in the Bible. So they, were, they died, they were killed, but they were given, uh, they went straight to be with the Lord, they were given those robes of salvation. He says, rest for a little while longer. And at this point, there's probably like three years, three and a half years, maybe. That's how, how much longer. It seems that this is the frustration of Antichrist. Everything he does is causing, in fact, more people to turn to him. But Satan has very little time left here. Remember in Revelation 1, Jesus said, I'm the one who has the keys to death and Hades. 
He is ultimately in charge. Christ waits, though, because people are still repenting. And that is really what the thought I want to leave us with now as we go back. We stand back, we look at this from a big picture, we see that God's word is true, we see that things are moving in his direction, and even today, we must still accept that we need to come to the Lord. We need to be saved, we need to repent of our sins, we need to understand that this king who is coming back is the one who came before, he's the one that died on a cross for us, disarmed the devil, defeated death through the resurrection, purchased our salvation for us if we accept him by faith. And if you don't know the Lord today, I would say here, do not let that go to waste. Do not let that go to waste. Just as Paul said when he was writing to the Corinthians, as an ambassador for Christ, I make an appeal through myself. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He's, he's literally begging these people to accept the salvation that God has offered. He says, we, we made him, he made him who knew no sin, the spotless lamb, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God that all these things we are studying are not for those who are redeemed in that sense. There is a matter of urgency to this. He also said, behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Even in the midst of judgment, there is salvation. And we are in the age of grace right now, if you want to put it in those terms, in the age of the, the proclamation of the gospel, and we need to accept the day of salvation and come to the Lord. It's the most important thing, really, we can ever do. Amen? You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.